All right. Welcome back, everybody, to The Corresponding Author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and my co-host is John Michelli. And today we're excited to be interviewing Jeff Leak from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Jeff, hello. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about it. Awesome. All right. So today we're going to be talking about a couple things. Um, but first, we like to ask a set of questions to kind of get to know you as an interviewee. Uh, what do you, or how do you define data science? Ah, okay. So uh, I define data science as the process of using data to answer scientific questions. And so I know that seems a little tautological, but the idea is that I think that a lot of different definitions of data science are floating around there. Some are more about software engineering or a little bit more about data engineering or a little bit more about statistics. And so for me, I think that the, the way that I define it is, is someone who's actually using data to answer scientific or research questions. So when I think about data science, I put most of the emphasis on science and not on data. And so I, I think of data science as, as a process and as an approach to doing a scientific exercise, but using data. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, I think that a lot of people talk about that, but I'm interested you say it's got to be for kind of like research. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe pluck your brain about like, what are other things that I, I think data scientists do things other than research. Um, I think they can answer questions. I'm, not, I'm, sh I'm just like maybe a little unclear where you, you draw the line on what's research and what's not. Yeah, I think what I mean by research is so typically when you're doing, you know, the reason why you would engage somebody who's doing data science as opposed to, you know, somebody who's just doing data engineering or something else like that um, is that in, in general, if you have a data set or you want to answer a question with some data, you're trying to do something new. And so the best process that we have for answering new questions, whether that's new, I need to develop a new prototype for something that never existed before, or it's new, there's this data set and I have no idea what's in it and I have to figure out what's in it, or new, hey, we have a data set and it's in raw form and we have to get it into processed form. I feel like all of those exercises are doing something new. And so on some level involve research, you have to figure out something new. If it was just off the shelf, I can just take this thing off the shelf and answer my question, you know, this platform or this tool, then I don't think of that as data science. So for example, if to answer your question, all you need to do is take an already existing Excel macro and just apply it to a data set that you already have and you don't have to think about it or try to figure something out, I wouldn't necessarily call that data science. It's, you have to figure some part of it out in order for it to be called data science, in my opinion. I think that, I think that's fair, but, but what if you wrote the macro? Sure. I mean, then I think you've done the science part. Now you're doing the production part, yeah. right? I mean, uh, I think yeah. that... Okay. I think the part of you discovering that macro, macro and developing it and, and putting it together is the part where I would call it data science. And then the part where it's, you know, uh, you just applying that over and over and over again to the same problem, I would either call that data engineering or, or putting data science into production, or I, I would sort of separate the initial discovery and figuring out process from the eventual maybe repetitive application of that to some particular problem set. So for example, if you develop an API, um, that a machine learning API, I would consider that data science, but just using that API over and over again for the exact same application inside a piece of software, I don't think that's data science anymore. That's an engineering question, in, in my opinion. So one question I have is your definition is, I guess, pretty broad. Like, how would you differentiate the two between a data scientist and just a scientist? Right. And so I think that the way that data scientists ex distinguish themselves and, and the reason why you start hearing a lot more about data scientists in the last few years, for example, is that 
historically, if you were a scientist, the only way that you could really sort of do science was by using something like a microscope to collect data with, a you know, you could use a microscope to do that. You could use a sequencing machine to do that. Um, but now you can do a lot of the scientific process with a computer that could be scraping data off of websites. It could be collecting data from a survey and manipulating it. But a lot of the actual scientific process is involved with doing things with the data themselves. And so I think of a data scientist as a person who is a scientist who primarily you know, exercises their scientific capabilities by doing it with something with data. And so I do think that the data scientist and scientist overlap is quite heavy. And I think it's only going to increase over time as disciplines collect more and more data. Um, and I think that that's a good thing. I think that the trend towards people who can do work with data being the scientists themselves is, is something that I think of as a positive trend in the field, as opposed to having those two things completely separated, where there's a person that collects the data, they're the scientist, and then there's another person, they're the statistician or the data analyst, and they're not involved in the scientific process at all. They're just there to crunch the numbers and produce a result. I, I, I don't really like that that version of this, you know, research or scientific or, or even like the business enterprise. You want those people working together sort of deeply. And that means that the data person has to become more and more just like the scientists. They're interested in collecting the data. They're interested in the answer to the problem. And they're sort of deeply involved in the application. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. It, it seems like in some respects, it sounds like if we define it this way, the the term data science was a, not a backlash, but a response to, I think in society, when you say someone's a scientist, they immediately jump to like beakers in a lab and a wet lab setting when you talk about science. So I wonder if like, you know, we see science much more broadly, but I think a lot of other people see science as much more of a narrow view of wet lab science um, in some respects. And that data science is saying like, hey, like, yeah, we're scientists, but like it's about data. So don't get your mind that I'm necessarily going to be working with a beaker, um, even though I have worked with beakers. Yeah, I do. I think that there's definitely that that bias. And I think a great example of this is, say, for example, in, in the genomics research that I do, very commonly, I'm interested in a particular scientific question that I want to answer myself, my own research group wants to answer. And often we can go out and collect that data, not with a sequencing machine or not with a wet lab, but by actually going to the internet and finding public data sets that already exist and synthesizing them and collecting them. And then we can answer the scientific question. And so we're a scientific group trying to answer questions about molecular biology, but the primary tool we do use to do that is not a sequencing machine or a set of beakers, and you know it's a set of data that are on the internet that we can collect. So it's primarily the computer and the data that where we're exercising our scientific sort of um, expertise. I really like that answer. I think that's that's really insightful. So following up on that a little bit, uh, John and I have created a podcast about all things academic data science. And we've sort of talked about how we view ourselves as academic data scientists. And I wanted to get your opinion on how do you self-identify? Um, you sit in a biostats department, for example. Do you identify self-identify as a biostatistician or how do you self-identify? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people who do data science, I probably could label myself in a bunch of different ways. And, and to be honest, I probably label myself a little bit differently depending on which group I'm in. So, uh, and that's because the sort of skill set that I typically bring to a collaboration or a group is somewhat fluid and it sort of overlaps a little bit with the science and overlaps a little bit with the data and a little bit with the statistics and kind of depending on the project, I kind of pick the skills that are relevant to solving the problem. And so, um, 
I think that, I, I mean, I have a PhD in biostatistics. I sit in a biostatistics department, so I think you could definitely call me a biostatistician. But I would say that the types of scientific problems I work on fall outside the scope of what people have traditionally drawn a wall around for biostatistics. So it's, so it's probably more like data science. The kind of work that I do has typically, when people draw the sort of circles around what discipline that is, is probably closer to data science. And so I would say I probably call myself a data scientist more accurately than I would a, a traditional biostatistician. Okay. Interesting. So you mentioned skill sets, for example, and how the skill sets can vary across different groups that you're in. Could you give yeah. some examples of that? Yeah. So like, imagine I'm in a collaboration, for example, I'm in a collaboration with some, some people here in the computer science department, Ben Langmead's group and other people's group over there in computer science. And in that group, my computer programming skills are extremely weak compared to everybody in that group. And there would be no sense in me trying to be the main computer programmer for that group. I would just look silly. Um, but then there's another collaboration I have that would be with, say, a molecular biologist. And in that setting, I'm the one that has to do most of the computer programming because I actually know how to do that. And so my skill set in computer programming, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself good enough to be the world's expert in computer programming. Definitely not. But I know how to do it a little bit and I can use it enough to answer the questions when I'm working in a certain collaboration. But if I'm working with people who know a lot more about that, I might ramp down that skill. And there, what they need me more for is sort of my knowledge of statistics and how to calculate summary statistics and what do sufficient statistics mean and all of that sort of thing fits in more to that project. And so sort of depending on the project, I'm bringing different sets of skills to the table. And so the label of what I would be probably changes project to project. Right. So, but I do, I think I like the label of data scientists because I do think that in statistics, biostatistics departments, historically, there hasn't been any circle you can draw around this particular set of skills and give it a concrete label. And since there was no concrete label, it was very hard to sort of get credit for it or to feel like you were an expert in something very specific that had a name. And so I really like the fact that now you can draw a circle around this sort of set of skills um, that include a little bit of computer programming, a little bit of thoughtful question engineering and answering, and, and call that data scientist. And then it makes it a lot easier to A, explain to other people what you do, but also B, I mean, it matters less to me now as I get more senior, but definitely when you were when I was junior, it mattered a lot to be able to put a definition around what I what I was doing. I like how you mentioned um, this this change in your career as you were going from junior to senior and how it mattered to you a lot more when you were younger. I agree. So sort of following up on that, what about career paths for people who want to be a data scientist in academia? Are there some now typical or atypical career paths about how people can get these types of positions? And then what types of positions do you see that are available to people who are interested in become, doing data science in academia, whether they're teaching or doing research or and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. One thing that I, I think it's uh, my observation is primarily going to be from the statistics, biostatistics world, but I think it applies somewhat more broadly as well. I think in a lot of academic disciplines, data is becoming more relevant to those disciplines. That's everything from the humanities to like the biological sciences to the physical sciences all have experienced this similar data moment at the same time. And as they experienced that moment, they more and more needed people with the skills to analyze data, collaborate with other scientists in those groups and answer questions using data, do this sort of thing that I call data science. 
um, I'm not sure that all of those fields have kept up in terms of being able to promote and credential those people. And so I do think that it's a bit of a challenge. I think the current model for how data science usually works in academic departments, in my experience so far, is that people get uh, you know, accepted into a role primarily for their credential in one of those sub-disciplines. So for example, I got my job as an academic uh, faculty because I was a biostatistician and I got it on my biostatistical sort of street cred. But then I've primarily done stuff that's not traditional biostatistics once I got here. And it was a bit of a struggle to explain to more senior colleagues and to people outside of the field what exactly I was doing because it wasn't in the traditional boxes. And so I think that Unfortunately, it still feels like that's a little bit how it works. Like a lot of people get their job based on their sort of traditional field specific credentials. And then they're kind of a data scientist on the side a little bit. And it's a matter of trying to like wrap it that up and package it so that they can get promoted and kind of advance their careers. But I think that's a big challenge. It doesn't give room for people who just primarily want to do data science all day long because that's that role is, I think, a little less exists. So you're thinking of tenure track faculty, right? Or I mean, because there's also non tenure track faculty like you can. I've heard titles such as research scientists or research associates um, or lecturers or I mean, different terms for essentially what are data scientists sitting in academia, but they're not necessarily tenure track faculty or correct me if I'm wrong, if I misunderstood. Right. And I think that that's, I was definitely thinking about tenure track there, but I think that those two things, I think to some extent should be on different axes. Like I think that's two dimensions. There's the first dimension, which is what do you do? Like professionally, do you work in biology or statistics or data science or what, what, what do you do sort of with your time? Um, and then the, the second axis is like, how do you spend your time, which is, uh, do you mostly teach? Do you mostly do research? Do you mostly write grants and lead a group? And so uh, what I would like to see is more independence of those two axes, because I think sometimes there's a certain subset of things that get classified and in, in, into a certain kind of position, even though I think there should be more flexibility in that. So let me give you a, like a concrete example, because that's a little bit hand wavy. I think what I mean is, Typically, at most universities, the sort of, in some ways, the, the the best roles go to the tenure track faculty in the sense that they get to have a say over the way that the department runs. They get to, you know, have usually typically better benefits and better salaries. There's lots of advantages to being a tenure track faculty member at most universities. But those roles primarily give credit for a certain kind of research within a sub-discipline, whereas um, other kinds of roles that I think should be just as awesome, but are currently kind of treated as a different sort of level of position. Um, so for example, imagine all you want to do is teach data science. There are these roles for teaching, you know, teaching faculty for data science out there. I'm not entirely sure at certain places they're treated really well at other places they're treated as sort of glorified adjuncts. And so it's sort of hard to know with a tenure track faculty, you kind of know consistently you're going to be treated as well as a faculty member can be treated. If you're one of these other roles, you're kind of gambling a little bit that the institution is going to support it in a good way. Um, and so uh, I, I'm a little nervous about the fact that data science is in a large extent getting pushed out of the tenure track roles, it seems like, and more into these other roles where there's variable support and variable sort of emphasis. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's the support from the university that concerns me. And then there's also, I've, I talked about this on a previous podcast of kind of the inconsistency of the curriculum itself between institutes. I mean, if you're, you talked about teaching, for example, um, I find that 
the curriculum can vary quite a bit depending on what department or what institute you're in. And so there's just a lot of variability in terms of the support that you can get from your senior officials or your leadership at your school. And then also the the types of material that would be taught in the curriculum, the variability in the types of positions that are available. So thinking about it from a student's perspective who wants to maybe explore different possibilities of job potential or career paths in academic data science, it's, it's very overwhelming to try and explain a lot of this to students. What do you think? I mean, yeah, I, I think that's true in general, whether it's data science specific or not. I think academia at the moment is a little bit like in flux and a little bit fractured, and it's sort of hard to explain all the different career paths. I think that that's already a hard problem, even if you aren't thinking about data science. Um, but I think definitely within the world of data science, where there's not an obvious discipline, there's not an obvious sort of home for data science in most places. Like if you look at how data science is structured at most universities, it's, it's like these interdepartmental institutes that typically don't have the power to uh, hire and promote faculty within them. So you have to not only be a member of this institute, you also have to have a primary home and that primary home could be in a stats department or a biostats department or a computer science department or a biology department. And there you're kind of at the whims of whether the faculty in that department respect and understand what data science is, which probably varies a lot by department and, and location and all of that. So I do think that the there's there's the general problem of explaining all the different faculty options or academic options for a, data, uh, a person in general. And then there's also the problem of for data science, there's this extra compounding factor that there's no obvious home for them necessarily in academia. Yeah. So do you think somebody who is a student, for example, is wanting to consider a career path down this this track? Like, I can imagine somebody just feeling very overwhelmed and frustrated. And I know this because I've talked to many students. I, I have so many lunches with undergraduates and, and graduate students who are interested in pursuing different career paths in data science, but they're just completely overwhelmed at all the options and how there's such variation between them. Um, and I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> how, uh, but basically how I talk to students about this. Yeah, like how, like how do I, Sorry, yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, I usually try to take it student and student by student or postdoc by postdoc in the case of my, the people that work with me and the policy I have that applies, whether they're data sciencey or not is, you know, it's their career and their job. So they should try to find something that they want to do. And I, I really don't care where it is or what it is or what the title is, as long as they're happy. And so that's sort of my philosophy on these things. Um, and so the big challenge is mostly an explanation then. And like, I try to do a little due diligence myself and calling my friends at those other institutions and say, hey, my, you know, my postdoc is really interested in this kind of different kind of role that you've just created. Do you think it would be a good fit? Do you think it's going to be supportive? How does it relate to these other roles that you have at your university? So unfortunately, a lot of that is sort of manual labor at this point in the sense that it's like calling up places and asking them because there's no kind of standard definition of how these things work, if you know what I mean. So so it ends up being yeah. a, little, a little bit of like a, a manual process. Yeah, we talked in a in a previous episode kind of about how I, I thought in some respects that there was some selection, self-selection bias in data science people because kind of this this field was, you know, kind of emerging and the people who jumped into it turned out to be the people who were like were comfortable kind of switching into this kind of unknown quantity. And it still seems like that's happening at the uh, job level as well. It seems like that you have to be either comfortable living in 
this uh, newly formed role where, you know, you might be the first to go through your, your department in this role to get promoted. So that's always like a, a, it's always a scary, maybe not a scary thought, but always something where it's not assured because then other faculty don't have like a template to say like, this is what this person looked like. This, they get promote, they can get promoted. So it sounds like with these new emerging roles, there's, there's a lot of opportunities, but you're saying that like, there's not many templates that have gone through the process yet. Is there a template for a university that you think has done a good job? A good job of promoting data scientists, you mean? Yeah, of, of not just promoting, but hiring, promoting, ten- I mean, like going through the entire process and supporting these individuals, not just in the promotion process. I mean, I think that there are individual places where I've heard b- better and worse things about like how people are supported. I don't think there's any place yet that I've seen where I'm like, oh, that's the model that everybody should should use. I, I you know, at least I haven't seen that model yet. I do think that like, so for example, I feel like I've been here at Hopkins Biostat and I've done remarkably data sciencey and remarkably non-biostaty things. And they've been really supportive of me in terms of my promotion and all that sort of thing. It hasn't been a problem for me. And I think that, you know, my colleagues who are at other biostat departments have sort of said uh, that, that, that they can kind of figure out a way to make it work. But I feel like there's still an opportunity laying out there for someone somewhere at a university to say, no, we're going to actually make like a department of data science, or we're going to make data science be a huge fraction of what we're going to do as the biostat department of the stat department. And when we do that, we're going to totally change our promotion criteria and our hiring criteria and our grad student admission criteria to really not just allow this to happen on the side, but really to embrace it and make data science a core function of what we do. And I don't know if there's if that sort of environment where it's the core function. I, I haven't seen a place where they've embraced it in that kind of core central kind of way. I definitely have seen places that have to a better or less extent supported data science activities done by faculty and staff and students who are already within a particular scientific discipline kind of doing it in different ways. That's interesting. The way you described it, it was... If, correct me if I'm wrong, if, is data science is sort of as a part of stats or biostats? Is that correct? Well, I see that like, you know, for example, it can be a part of a stat or a biostat department. I could, I've also seen data science institutes and computer science departments and computer engineering departments. I think it's in, you know, it's in all sorts of different areas. I'm saying within all of those, like imagine it's in a computer science department. Most of the time when I talk to people who are in a data science institute and a computer science department, they say, well, first I'm a computer scientist. And as a secondary thing, I can define myself as a data scientist in the sense that I have to do the promotion criteria that a standard computer science department would want first. And then on top of that, I can do some data science stuff. I I haven't seen a place yet where it says where a person says I can do the data science stuff as my primary thing. And oh, sometimes I do a little bit of computer science as well. That's not I haven't seen a place like that as far as I know yet. Do you think it would be worth like universities to exploring that option of having data science as its own thing, as opposed to being a part of an already established department? I mean, one of the the problems I see with that approach is that it sort of makes it secondary to these established departments. It doesn't really make it stand on its own. What do you think? It doesn't make it stand on its own if it's its own independent department? No, no, I'm sorry. The other way around. If it doesn't make it stand on its own, if it's like under the umbrella, for example, of computer science or in an already established department. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that that's true. I think that there is an opportunity out there. And I think one of the things that it, the, that it would afford is the opportunity for such a department 
to pull in and hire people that have historically had a hard time being hired in traditional computer science, statistics, biostatistics, biology, psychology departments, because they can, you know, they can change the promotion criteria to say things like, if you're the person that primarily analyzes data for these five different groups, and that's all you do with your time, you're just really good at that, analyzing data and answering questions, we can promote you along because our criteria include that as a main component of it. You are going to be solving questions with data. And so I, I don't know that, that, that role is sort of, you can find that role, but it's not the main role in any department as far as I know right now, you know, it's always, a, it's a, it's a subcomponent of, of what you would do as opposed to the main thing that you would do in my experience. Yeah, so I guess it makes sense. I guess from an academic perspective, I can understand why it kind of went the way it did is because, you know, creating a new department requires a lot of sign off from people it requires money. Um, institutes require the same thing, but maybe not as much as the same. I don't know if there's actual I know there's policies and structured, but I don't know if there's actual requirements of the of a department within a school. So I can understand why some of these institutes sprung up or reincorporation and trying to refold data science into a department versus creating its own. So I'm just saying I, I can understand why it went the way it did. But I agree. I I don't believe I've seen anything that's really done it at the forefront and said, like, we are co making this as a core department in our school. Um yeah. And I mean, I think I see a lot of cases where the big data science classes, and there are really huge data science classes being taught at lots of universities now, but you see those being taught out of a traditional department. And so when that huge class gets taught out of a traditional department, then that traditional department absorbs the tuition dollars, which means they can hire faculty using that money. And so it, it really centralizes that discipline within that department. And so that department has a lot of say over what that discipline means, right? And that means that necessarily that that discipline is going to craft it and push it towards their discipline a little bit instead of letting it sort of flourish in the way that's most optimal by like not getting in the way. And so I do think that there's this, you know, like in the same way that a lot of mathematics departments in the U.S. right now, the reason they can have so many f mathematical faculty is because they teach calculus to everybody at the school. And so when you teach calculus to everybody at the school, you get a lot of tuition dollars, and that means you can hire a lot of mathematics faculty. And so a lot of math mathematics departments are sort of, you know, driven by the fact that they're teaching these large classes, service classes to the whole university. And you could imagine a data science department being the same way, right? There's these huge data science service classes to be created and developed and maintained. And that could be the sort of subsidy that, that allows you to build a department or a, a, a group that would sort of be focused on really analyzing data and doing really applied work. And I think that would be, you know, an interesting opportunity that I think hasn't been totally seized yet, um, as far as I can tell. So, so you, 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 you said training like large classes in these mathematics things. So I do want to highlight, you know, that, uh, Roger Pang, you and Brian Caffo have created a specialization on Coursera that has taught many, many, many people. So do you want to maybe comment on how that started or how, how the trajectory has been or feedback from students or whatever? Sure. I mean, that. so we, I think you're probably referring to the Coursera data science program. So we built this data science specialization on Coursera. We built it in 2014. We built it in a very low budget, high rate of development way. Um, and we did it largely because we were really interested in putting together a program that was focused really on the data analytic process um, in a way that we could we could kind of have full range of, of creativity applied to it. And so at the time, because Coursera was sort of so new and the university's relationship with Coursera was so new, we really had a ton of flexibility, which let us 
produce a program that was really exactly what we wanted in terms of teaching people all the things that we thought were important, but might not necessarily make it into a biostatistics master's program or a biostatistics PhD program, because there are other things that have to be taught in those traditional disciplines. And so that gave us a lot of flexibility. And so we built this program. And then it, I think a function of the fact that A, data science was kind of the hot topic at the time, and B, that um, at the moment we were the only data science program on the internet, tons and tons of people came and, and took that class um, and set of classes. And one thing I'm really proud of about that program is that it's really stood this, the test of time that a lot of other programs that have come after that have kind of covered the same material and sort of built a similar style program. And I think that that's a testament to the fact that we were really focused pretty hard on what do you skills, what are the skills you really need to know when you want to analyze some data and solve some problems with data. And so um, we sort of built that program then and we've, we've continued to use these online platforms largely because they allow us this flexibility to tackle building kinds of programs that, you know, we, that don't necessarily fit in a naturally into a discipline. And, and so you can be a little bit more creative with those, those platforms. What's the type of population of students that take the courses? Yeah. So this is one of the things, one of the reasons why we built the courses in the first place was because we wanted to expand the scope of who could take the classes from us because, you know, it's pretty expensive to do a degree at Johns Hopkins. And so these MOOCs gave an opportunity for people to take the classes all over the world and for much cheaper. Um, it turns out though, that most of the people that end up taking massive online open courses or MOOCs are um, people that have already have a high level of education um, or are typically sort of already kind of well off. So it's, it's typically people who are like software engineers who are career changing um, and who want to get into data science. That's like a typical user of our uh, Coursera data science sequence rather than, you know, who we had kind of hoped would take it, which is people that have less educational opportunity and less educational background. Right. So that leads me to my next question. So you have been developing a different MOOC uh, called Chromebook Data Science, which is meant for a different population of students. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, definitely. So that's something I'm really excited about right now. And we're actually changing the name from Chromebook Data Science to Cloud-Based Data Science. Oh, and nice. the reason why is because the philosophy of the program is basically that you can do this training program from any computer with a web browser. And so when we originally created the program, we were sort of thinking about Chromebooks because they were a cheap laptop. And so we were like, what's the program you could do on a Chromebook? But we found that a lot of people think you can only do it on a Chromebook, but that wasn't the point of the program. The, pro the point of the program is like you only need a web browser and an internet connection to learn how to do this data science. So all of the learning materials, all of the practice problems, everything can be done through a web browser. And so the real idea, the real philosophy behind it is imagine that your only access to a computer is you go to the public library and get two hours a week on the public library's computer. You could do this data science training program on that computer and you wouldn't have to have a fancy computer or anything else. And so we built this program with a couple of things in mind. One is we wanted to make sure that it was the prerequisites started low enough that you didn't have to already know something about computer programming really to leap in. We wanted it to be totally free to anybody that wanted to take it for free. We wanted it to be um, the kind of program that you could do entirely through a web browser so you wouldn't have to have any kind of particular computer or, or equipment to be able to do it. So we sort of had these these design criteria because what we wanted to do was deliver a program that could be taken by anybody at a high school level and above that wanted to learn how to do data science so we could really expand the population of people that were taking our, our online courses. Um, so that was a, a, a huge effort to kind of reimagine this, this massive online open course focused on 
making it cheap for everybody, making it accessible to everybody and making it possible to do no matter what computer you had. And so that's, that's sort of the, the main massive online open course program that we built. Um, which I'm, I'm really excited about because I think it opens doors that even our, our original data science programs on Coursera, uh, don't. So what type of, like you said, the material starts with somebody, for example, in high school, what type of material do you start with or level, do you, uh, level of education with their type of background do you start with? Yeah. So we imagine that they'll be starting with like a 10th grade math and reading level. And so that means they have to be able to read and follow instructions and type those instructions in. So we're careful to like avoid jargon to the, mo as the extent that we possibly can. But the training program also begins with things like, how do you set up your laptop? How do you set up the sort of web-based tools, the cloud-based tools that you're going to use? How do you set up Google Docs? How do you set up Google Sheets? It goes all the way back to real basics of how do you use cloud-based tools to do anything with communication and data before it goes into computer programming. And so it sort of builds up from the very basics all the way through, um, I would call it sort of basic modeling and basic machine learning and basic data products is sort of the end stuff that they learn how to do. And so sort of that, that progression of, you know, never having used a computer for programming at all before, or for even think about analyzing data all the way up to analyzing data, we had to build some inter, uh, sort of intermediate classes in between um, the data science material we already had developed and the person who's like never used a computer for data science or programming before. And so we kind of built those, those prerequisites into the program. Wow. I can only imagine. <laughs> I have had some experience with with this uh, this group in, in this project, and the fact that it's on a Chromebook was actually kind of interesting because it has a touch screen, whereas a lot of us work on uh, a Mac or like a Linux machine or something like that, where you know we would say click like click run on like our studio or something like that, and then you know I would naturally assume the student would go to the mouse, move it up to the run button, and then click it, whereas they would you know because a lot of them are a bit younger in the sense that they they've worked on like touch phones their entire life they just like literally click the screen yeah. and click run so yeah. it's just interesting that like they have the it's not just that they develop skills for like cloud-based things i think when we talk to them they can they operate with within the cloud system completely different than i think uh i would yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things. So we built this massive online open course sequence, just like the ones we have historically, but we were still having trouble getting it into the hands of people who maybe come from groups that haven't necessarily heard about data science before. And so we built on top of that an in-person training program that we actually run here in East Baltimore that takes people through the massive online open courses, but it also gives them in-person tutoring support. It gives them some financial support so that they can do it if they come from a financially or housing insecure background. It gives them a laptop computer so that they can work on the courses. And then we sort of tutor them through the courses so they can get this credential. And so that we've been calling that um, Chromebook Data Science Plus, it's gonna be now called cloud-based data science plus and that tutoring program has been the part that like john has been really involved with which is great which is sort of really taking this data science work that has been pretty cloistered within people who already have a lot of education already do a lot of software engineering and really trying to drive it down into like communities where they can um, get access to these skills that are really in high demand um, and and use them uh, in their own lives so that's that's been an exciting thing but one of the things we have noticed is that they use it and they analyze the data in ways that, you know, we don't, we haven't really seen before when we teach these classes online here or I mean, in person here at Hopkins. Nice. Nice. 
And so what do you envision as next steps for the project? Are you planning on developing different MOOCs that kind of extend the material that you've already built or what's next for the program? Yeah, for sure. So we uh, there's uh, there's two parts of it. One is the employment side of this. So we we're actually using this uh, online. I think that the coolest thing about this online educational platform is it's an opportunity to really use low cost, high efficiency online education as an intervention to help people improve their lives. And so that's the thing I'm most excited about. As part of that, we're working on the tail end of okay, now you've finish these programs and you're, you know, highly skilled, how do we get you into employment opportunities that are good for you and can help you and your family out? So we're spending a lot of time thinking about that employment side of the equation and it's a, a complicated but fun problem to work on. And then in terms of the course development and the material development, we're definitely thinking about expanding the scope of the courses, like adding, you know, additional material on that people can take after they've finished this course sequence. But also, you know, with you, Stephanie, and with other people, we're thinking about expanding into new areas that, you know, are data adjacent, like AI and things like that, where we can build out new courses that would allow people to sort of build on what they've already learned and, and do even cooler and newer stuff. And so, yeah, we're, we're sort of, I feel like we're at the very beginning of what could be a really amazing collection of, you know, combination of technologies that we're developing and courses that we're developing and ways that we're using them to really improve people's lives. Awesome. Um, okay, so I, had, I have another question and then I'll leave it to John. So my question is, if you have advice for students who are interested in becoming a data scientist in academia, what would that advice be? I think before I'd worry about the academia part of that, I would worry about the data science part of that. Sure, and sure, so, sure. <laughs> so the way I would, I mean, this, I, I think that that's like, as I said a little jokingly, but it is like, you got to decide which part to focus on first. And, um, and I would focus on the data science part. And, and the way I would focus on the data science part is I would suggest that they find a problem that they care about and don't be constrained by the things that, have historically been studied wherever they're studying. So just find something you actually want to find the answer to. So uh, the, my favorite data science blog posts and and sort of papers and everything like that are often driven by someone just being really curious and wanting to find an answer. And now they can do that. They can go out and get the data to answer it. So like a, a famous example of this is a former student of mine, Hillary Parker, who has another podcast. Um, she wrote this blog post when she was a grad student where she studied the popularity of baby names. And in particular, she cared about her own name. She was really interested in seeing how popular it was over time. And she found out that after the election where uh, Bill Clinton was elected president, the name Hillary like dramatically dropped in popularity. It was the single year yeah. largest drop in population uh, popularity for one name um, in sort of the history of the baby name census. And she discovered that and wrote this like amazing blog post that's hilarious and filled with gifs and like super fun to read. And it ended up like helping her find jobs and all that kind of stuff. But at the beginning, the main thing that it did was it was just something she really cared about. She was really into, and she wrote like a hilarious post that was like really well researched. And so I think that launched a lot of opportunities for her. And so I think I would suggest to people if they're starting out their careers, like find a problem you really are interested in, find a problem you really care about and just try to solve it. Um, using the data that you have access to and the software you can find. And don't worry too much about what it's all going to mean in the end. Just solve problems you care about. And then in terms of the academic part, you know, I think that I give advice that if you currently still, if you want to be a data science and scientist in academia, you need to have some sort of traditional bona fides in one department or the other. Because as I mentioned sort of at the beginning of the podcast, 
there aren't a lot of like pure play data science departments yet. So if you want to get a job in academia, it makes a lot of sense to make sure you publish and, and work on problems in a particular sort of scientific sub-discipline where there are potentially going to be those kinds of jobs available. And then you can continue to do your data science stuff, but also kind of make sure you're keep, kind of keeping those credentials current is what I would tell people if they're really focused on sticking in academia. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, John, did you have any other questions? Yeah, so uh, we're going to probably link in the show notes the cloud-based data science course on LeanPub, but is there, uh, especially with hiring some of these individuals or getting involved doing the um, face-to-face stuff or getting involved with the project in any way, what would be the best way for anyone to go about that? Oh, yeah. Awesome. So there's a few different ways that we would love to have people get involved. We are currently hiring a couple of research associates uh, through the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab who are going to be doing content development. So if you're interested in helping us build out these courses and robustify them and, and build new material, I'd highly encourage you to apply to those jobs. Um, then we also do this training program here in East Baltimore where we're helping people who come from severely financially and housing limited means get into data science. Um, to train those people, we need to um, uh, be able to provide them with laptops. We need to be able to provide them with tutoring. So the best way to get involved there, if you're local here in Baltimore, you should get in touch with me and I, we can think of all sorts of ways you can volunteer and help out. If you're not local, but you really are into that kind of social, social driven uh, data science project, you can uh, donate to the program through the School of Public Health. You just label it with a Chromebook data science. When you're donating, that would be really helpful. And then on the tail end, we are producing lots of talented data science folks now here in East Baltimore. They're amazing, talented people. And um, if you're hiring, whether that's remote positions or positions here in Baltimore or positions that you think that these, you know, you need data science help with, you could definitely reach out to us and we'd love to try to help place some of these folks in, in positions at your uh, company or organization. So definitely get in touch in that regard as well. Okay, uh, so in the last section of the podcast, we have this thing called data science dinner party. Has John explained it to you before? I can I can explain it. No, oh, okay. no, okay. We're pulling a fast one on you, so <laughs> we haven't explained this yet. Oh, so oh boy! <laughs> the right. idea is if you're at a dinner party and you kind of want to explain something um, that you do as a in academia that's somewhat related to data science, if you had to explain to somebody what you did this week for fun or for work that was related to either academia or to data science in a very human, understandable way, um, we just have a segment at the end in which we talk about what we did this week that's sort of on that level. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I it depends. Today, you've kind of caught me on a, it's like, it's Tuesday after Memorial Day, so I haven't done very much data science work this week. <laughs> But um, okay. <laughs> I've been to like a faculty meeting and I've been on this podcast. So, uh, okay. <laughs> but I would say that in general, one of the ways I explain it to people, I mean, sometimes it kind of depends on what week it is. So if I'm working on genomics work, I, I often talk about how I analyze the data from human genomes to understand the way that humans work. And then I also analyze that data to try to figure out what do we do when people get diseases? Like, do we give them different drugs or do we give them different treatments, things like that? Um, so I, that's kind of a way I do it with genomics. Uh, with education, I say I work on analyzing data and building technologies to help lift people out of um, uh, poverty by getting into data science. So that's something that I'm, I, I tell people that I, I do. But the more generic version, I keep I, I love this analogy lately. It's sort of like, I don't know, there was this sort of um, West Wing episode a long time ago about um, they were talking to this billionaire who's going to donate some money. And the person the, the person on the show named C.J. Craig, who was the press secretary, said, 
you know, what we actually need is for people to build infrastructure so we can deliver medicine to people where there's no infrastructure. There aren't good roads. There aren't good things like that. So you could blanket the country in highways and then start on plumbing. And they were talking about how that's not something that's like really fun to talk about. <laughs> like it's not an easy thing to host a telethon for is like building roads in, in places that don't have them, but it is incredibly important work. And so I often talk about the work that we're doing, I think in data science is often building the roads and the pipes. Like you don't think about it when they're working, um, but somebody has to build them. And if they don't get built, then like you can't drive your car to places and you can't get fresh water. And so a lot of the work that I do, I feel like is building the roads and the pipes to help scientists solve important questions in cancer biology and in education and other areas like that. So that's, that's what I try to tell people. Oh man, no matter what John and I say, we'll never be able to... <laughs> follow up with that <laughs> that was awesome what do you what do you mean by that okay, you, i'll tell you what i was like, gonna say and then and then you can see <laughs> so this week i was responding okay, to reviewers comments so i write a lot of manuscripts and i submit them to journals to get peer-reviewed by my by colleagues that um in my uh yeah, by my peers and when i i got feedback and comments from one of the manuscripts that i submitted and so this past week I spent an enormous amount of time addressing those comments, but to do that, um, the reviewers asked that I apply the method that I developed to at least three other data sets, and they had some very specific data sets in mind. And so to do that, I spent an enormous amount of time downloading data and wrangling data, cleaning it up and getting it into R, pre-processing it to be able to apply it to my data. So I spent a lot of time with just data management this past week. Uh, I think I mis I misread the question. This is what you get for jumping me with a <laughs> question so that sorry. I didn't know was coming. Uh, let me let me tell you. No, I, I want another. Okay, I want to read it. you after John goes. Okay, so I'm gonna say maybe like two things. If I was at a dinner party, it's like, what did you do in the last week? So uh, I would say, you know, we have this academic data science podcast, which we're on right now. And so uh, in order to keep this going and you know pay for some extra mics and stuff like that, we put in we submitted a grant. Uh, last week to uh, an internal grant at Hopkins to see if they will, will fund fund this effort in any way. So that was a lot more academic and then definitely something that is um, much more academic maybe than data science, even though that it's supposed to be kind of the reverse, is I submitted a grant. It was about processing data and how to process data. And I got something back I had never, never received before. I actually got a response back saying that they could not find an editor for the paper. What? So, how is that possible? So, Jeff, you were wow. you were a code editor in your former life. How does that work? Uh, yeah. So, th how that works, at least to what's happened to us before, happened to me before, is like imagine somebody sends a paper in that's about a topic that neither of the co-editors have any idea about. Like imagine it's like deep in the weeds of empirical economics, and they've submitted it to a biostatistics journal. Then the we might look at each other and say, can you understand what's going on in this paper? And he'd be like, no, I don't understand what's going on in this paper. Then you might find the K nearest neighbor's closest associate editor and say, do you have any idea what's going on in this paper? And they would maybe say, I have no idea what's going on in this paper. And then we would usually respond back. Here's a couple of journals that we think might be a better fit for this kind of paper. We wouldn't be capable of reviewing it very well for you. So that's that's understandable. Uh, mine is like a how to process like CAT scans, head CAT scans, and it was a neuroimaging journal. So I would think that's not 
really outside the wheelhouse. Yeah, that seems like I, I don't understand what's going on there. That's that seems for for us, it would only be if it was like wildly out of scope that we yeah. couldn't find anybody to review it. That that's the response that I would expect. So their their responses were you can submit it to another journal, which is totally understandable, or would you uh recommend an editor? And I wouldn't will not do that. I will not put colleagues or friends in that position. Uh and mm. I'll just go to a different journal. So sorry to hear yeah, that. It was just strange. Yeah. Do I get my redo now? Yes. Take two. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so, okay. This is what I did in the last week. One of the things I did was I started and have just finished a blog post that I'm about to post about a research. What is a research quality data set? Cause I've been thinking a lot lately about how there's data that's stored out there in lots of different places. And there's all sorts of different things like data lake, et cetera, all these different buzzwords for data. And, I realized that when I'm actually doing research with data, I have a very specific thing that I try to transform the data into before I actually start doing work. And so I wrote a blog post about what it means to create research quality data. Hmm, fascinating. When are you going to post it? Well, I got to I got to put the finishing touches on it, uh, but I'm hoping to post it tomorrow. Okay, awesome. Well, I want to say thank you to Jeff for coming on the podcast. We've really enjoyed our, our conversation. Or I've really enjoyed my conversation. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to be on a podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's Jeff's first podcast. Yay! <laughs> Thanks, everybody. So in the show notes, we'll have a link to the uh, data science jobs, the cloud-based data science, and and then the uh, uh, the link to the blog post whenever we get it.